Wow. I had no idea I'd be back so soon. <clears throat> I really appreciate the positive feedback that people have provided. I had previously mentioned to Preston that I'd be interested in, in preaching on the, the road to Emmaus. Uh, and after last week, I guess he figured if I could turn two verses into 20 minutes, then he'd let me try to cover these 22 verses before everybody wants to go home for dinner. Um, I don't think it'll take that long today, uh, but I do want to thank Preston and the elders for providing me a chance to, to revisit the topic from uh, the first time that I ever stood behind the pulpit. Um, about 25 years ago, uh, at my childhood church, they had something called Children's Sunday, uh, where children from the congregation would fill all the roles of the church, um, from greeters and ushers to Sunday school teachers, uh, nursery workers, and even the person delivering the message. So I spent a couple of weeks writing a sermon with my dad. Uh, he did a lot of the heavy lifting. But when it came to actually delivering that message, I don't remember actually looking up at the congregation. I remember getting up here and speed reading my message, <laughs> being done in a little less than 10 minutes before stepping down and trying to make myself invisible. Um, Ever since then, I've, I've wanted a chance for a do-over. Uh, I've been looking forward to the chance to revisit this topic uh, for 25 years, and I, I look forward to going it through today with you, my brothers and sisters. Uh, so this, this account in Luke is an amazing story, uh, and I think it's, it's very important um, that we put it in the context of the day, the day that is Resurrection Sunday. Um, to start things off, uh, will you please join me in, in standing and reading with me Luke 24, 13 to 24? There we go. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. When he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here the last days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, he replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Thank you very much. So let's start back with that first sentence. Now, that same day, 
there's so much behind these four words. And first, I need you to, to forget anything that you've just read in the first 12 verses of Luke 24. And as a um, modern reader or member of this congregation, I also need you to forget the ending to this story and your familiarity with the very concept of resurrection. This was not a concept easily understood in the ancient world. Dead was dead. It was common occurrence to lose friends and family, even to what we would consider today to be minor medical issues. I want us to try to put our own experiences and knowledge of the scriptures aside and try to experience this story through the eyes of these two disciples. Actually, let's narrow it down to one. Let's, let's narrow it down to the perspective of the disciple not named Cleopas, the unnamed disciple. Let's try to put on their perspective, and we'll start with a quick recap of what's happened so far today. Well, they woke up this morning still stunned and at a loss for what's happened the last three days. Not only have things gone pear-shaped, the bottom has fallen completely out. Everyone in the house is absolutely brokenhearted. I believe that fear may be starting to, to creep in. They're starting to be concerned for their own safety. Jesus was no longer there to protect them. The authorities had killed Jesus. The women left this morning around dawn. Uh, they'd been talking yesterday and the day before about going to tend the body. Um, ever since Friday when Jesus' body had been taken down from the cross and hastily moved into the tomb. The women were upset that there had been so little time to properly prepare the body, and this would be their opportunity to honor their Lord again by cleaning him, an opportunity to mourn, an opportunity to say goodbye. Yesterday was hard. The disciples had been together, but it was like the air had been sucked out of the room. Only infrequent, small conversations. No one had been hungry. Most people just sat around and prayed and were alone with their own thoughts. Then all of a sudden, Mary Magdalene, burst through the house, panting. She's been running. It's still not seven o'clock. She's given some water, but she's not making a lot of sense. She says the body of Jesus is not in the tomb. She repeats it several times. She doesn't know where he is. She had left the other woman, women at the tomb and run to the house. Peter and John are already standing up. They're getting ready. The two of them, plus Mary Magdalene, are already out the door running back to the tomb. But even before they're out of view, it's easy to see that Mary Magdalene is unable to keep up with the men. They have fresh legs, and she's winded from running to the house to deliver the news. Now the house is buzzing. What does it mean? Has someone stolen the body? Why would someone do that? 
People are trying to piece things together. Peter and John returned back 30 or 40 minutes later, breathing heavy, confirming what Mary Magdalene had said. The tomb is empty. Jesus' body is gone. Speculation abounds. In the middle of the ruckus, the other women arrive home. There's Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and Joanna. They arrive home joyous. They say they have just met Jesus on the way home. And before that, they saw angels while at the tomb explaining that Jesus had risen from the dead. The angels specifically said, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Now the room's in an uproar. The women are trying to individually answer all the questions that are being asked. Multiple conversations are going on simultaneously, and through the door bursts Mary Magdalene again, cheeks wet with tears, but overjoyed. Jesus lives. The women are surprised, but where did you see him? Stories are told and retold. There's so much confusion and joyful crying that it might be true, but how? Dead is dead. No one's ever come back from the dead before. What about Lazarus, someone asks, or, or the little girl? Fine, yes, but why is Jesus not here now? More conversations, more confusions, lots of emotion. A glimmer of hope creeps back into the group, but it just doesn't make sense. No one understands what's going on, and it's not yet eight o'clock in the morning. Everything can, everyone can feel it. Something has changed, but no one knows what it is. The next few hours, people are moving again. Food is cooked. Conversations are had around the house. Lots of what ifs and what does it mean? The eyewitnesses retell their stories dozens of times. Hard questions are asked that no one has answers to. The group eats together, they fellowship, they don't know what will happen next. And yet after the flurry of activity this morning, nothing happens. Breakfast is finished, people talk, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, noon. Food is served again, the group eats, 1 p.m. Things are stuck. There's no way to make sense of it. Cognitive dissonance reigns. People try to reestablish normal, starting with the last thing they personally observed and know to be true. For most in the room, that certainty is that Jesus died on Friday. No one else goes to visit the tomb. It's empty. There's no answers there. The morning's events and adrenaline are starting to fade. Reality is broken. Life feels like a dream. No one can really reconcile what's going on, so the day's agenda is brought back. And by 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the two disciples are leaving the house, walking out of Jerusalem towards Emmaus, and still trying to figure out what in the world just happened. So that covers the first four words of 22 verses. And before moving on, let's just make sure we understand the author. This is Luke. 
He's not an eyewitness. He's writing at the second half of the first century. 30 years or so after Jesus' ministry, Luke is interviewing the eyewitnesses and collecting information before this generation dies. He's compiling these accounts to complement the information already recorded by the apostles. In short, he's an investigatory journalist in the same way that Lee Strobel was 2,000 years ago when he wrote the book Case for Christ. Like Lee Strobel, Luke is a bit of an outsider of sorts. He's a Gentile. In fact, he's the only Gentile author in the New Testament. He's also educated. He's a physician. I appreciate Luke's attention to detail. He's carefully cataloging and presenting the story in a step-by-step fashion. He's divinely inspired to record it for posterity so that people in the future, like us, can experience the events of Christ's life in the future as they unfold. Note, I'm not saying Christ's life, death, and resurrection because I want us to stay in the moment. I want us to keep our perspective with the unnamed disciple departing Jerusalem early to mid-afternoon. So let's rejoin that story that's already in progress. Now, the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. I've never heard of Emmaus. Where is that, Luke? It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And what were they doing? They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. I bet. It had been a very confusing morning. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Whoa, this can be awesome, right? I mean, they're going to hug him and celebrate that he's alive and ask him all the questions they have, like, where have you been for the last two and a half days? No. We, we need to quiet our 21st century perspectives. We need to stop getting ahead of ourselves. We're, we're ruining the story. These men are, are living in the moment. The story is being written as they speak. They have more important things to notice than someone else has walked up to join them. And at the same time, we've joined them and are privy to this conversation as it plays out. They're here in this moment for us. They're at the intersection of that day and the rest of history. Little do these men know that they're about to hold a mirror up for posterity so that we can go to that, back to that day ourselves. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept, but they were kept from recognizing him. They asked him, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. They've been put through the ringer the last few days, and this person has intruded on their grief and confusion and discussion and asked them to put into plain language what they're talking about. They've suddenly gone from a roaring conversation to at a total loss for words. His question makes them, in a moment, relive everything that has happened over the past week. All their memories come rushing to their minds at once. There's the warmth of the love of Jesus, the anger of what was done to him, and the looming icy fear and sorrow that has crept in during his absence these last three days. They're frozen in their tracks, 
simultaneously both trying to escape the intrusion of the outsider while still showing the person the love that Jesus had demonstrated throughout his life and ministry. So Cleopas speaks first, a bit incredulously, answering the question with a rhetorical question in an effort to escape quickly. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he says. Now all the events flood through their minds again, but this time in their love and sorrow and confusion, in the moment, their only answer is to say exactly what is on their mind. They're talking on top of each other again, finishing each other's sentences. They're trying to reconstruct the timeline. They're trying to figure out how the pieces fit together. They're laying out the order of events best they can. And Luke is documenting all of it as a testament for every data-oriented person seeking the truth for the first time. So they too can be walked through a first-hand account of what happened that day, Resurrection Sunday. And for all believers to be incredulous at the situation, that is unfolding in the gravity of what these men do not yet realize of what is happening or who they're talking to and simultaneously hold up our mirror, a mirror to our own disbelief. So in that moment for these men, the dam breaks. They're not holding back anymore. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us, and they went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. I don't think it came out perfectly clear like that. I think it came out in a jumble of words and emotion, and Luke has helped organize what is said in the moment. All we know that nothing was held back. Hashtag no filter. But it's out. But now it's out. They've told this stranger who apparently didn't know what had happened. He now knows more than anyone who wasn't at the house this morning. What will he say? Did they just put themselves in danger? Will he even understand what they're talking about? They don't have long to wait. We don't, you know, we haven't read that far yet. We need to read the next section. So for those following along in your Bibles or Bible apps, don't give it away yet. To keep things moving, I won't have you stand up again. But staying in the moment, let me read for us the next section of Luke 24, 25 to 33. You fools, oh, hold it, no, that's not quite right. Um, it's, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe that the prophet, how, and slow to believe what the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to enter these things and then enter his glory? They've just poured their hearts out to this stranger who's just rebuked them and stated a shocking premise. 
First of all, they don't like being called fools or slow to believe. They were good Jews and followers of Jesus. They regularly attended the synagogue and heard many messages on the Messiah. It's important to note here that they're not being rebuked because they didn't know the scripture. It's just because they had never listened, really listened and believed. So going back for a minute, let's remember the text states that they were kept from recognizing him. This is not to be cruel. God had a purpose from withholding this knowledge. Jesus' gradual revelation of himself allows them to learn certain lessons about trusting God's promises. Jesus had told these things to disciples many, many times, but they had not believed. They had a preconceived idea of who Jesus was, what he had come to do, and how he should do it. They liked the popular opinion of the time, that the Messiah was going to arrive in a blaze of glory to vanquish the Romans, setting up the Messianic kingdom, then and there. These ideas had gained in popularity over the previous 600 years. As the Jewish kingdom was passed from one occupier to the next, all of this had started when the Jewish nation was captured and exiled to Babylon. And then the Babylonians fell to the Persian Empire. And while the Jews were allowed to return to their land and rebuild the temple, they were still subjects of a foreign king. And then the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, conquered the Persians, but the Jews remained subjects, this time of the Greeks. And then the Roman Empire absorbed the Greeks along with the Jewish people in Israel. So in this context of 600 years of subjugation, the view of the Messiah had narrowed to deliverer and conqueror. The Jews were not looking for Jesus of Matthew, let the little children come unto me. But the Jesus of Revelation, the rider on the white horse who is called faithful and true, and who with justice he judges and wages war. They expected a temporal prince and were perplexed that Jesus had not assumed regal power, but instead had been put to death. The problem is that when things didn't turn out the way they thought they should, they dismissed the whole thing as a mere failure, a misplaced hope and trust. Well, God always has a plan. We're not always privy to what that plan is. When things don't turn out like we expect, instead of giving up and turning away, perhaps we would be wise to see things differently, to see if God is up to something bigger than we understand. These two disciples knew something had happened, but it was beyond their level of belief and understanding to see things as they truly were. Just because they knew about Jesus does not mean they knew him. Just because they could see him does not mean they could see who he was. They had never seriously considered who Jesus was, and the supernatural working of God to raise Jesus from the dead was just outside of their paradigm. 
So let's continue with verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus himself walked them through the entirety of his revelation to show who he was, why he had come, and why it was necessary. Jesus wanted them to see that if they believed what the scriptures said about him, they would understand why he had come and had to suffer. This was, without a doubt, the best sermon ever delivered by Christ himself about himself. This is the word from John 1.1, unpacking God's word and explaining Christ's fulfillment of prophecy. Would he have started them off with his genealogy? Would he start by recounting covenants, confirming that the Son of Man would be the seed of a woman, the seed of Abraham from the tribe of Judah, the seed of David? That's pretty dry conversation for the road if you don't have scrolls of names in front of you. I think he would have started with the Psalms. They'd be familiar lyrics they'd know by heart and they'd go straight to the root of their grief. Psalm 41, the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 22 lays out multiple prophecies that were fulfilled while Christ was on the cross. They would be scorned and mocked, that darkness would fall on the earth, that they would pierce his hands and feet, that his bones would not be broken, that they would cast lots for his clothing, and that he would give up his spirit. And then Psalm 16, that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. After this, I think he'd review all the illustrations of the Messiah's sacrificial death, from the ram that was provided to Abraham in place of Isaac, or the Passover lamb, for digging deep into Isaiah and Zechariah. From Isaiah 53.7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Is like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. Or Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him who grieves for a firstborn son. By explaining these things, Jesus wanted them to see that if they believed the scriptures, what the scriptures said about him, then they would understand why he came and he had to suffer. Belief and understanding are essential, just as Jesus said in Luke 16, 31, a little two on the nose here too. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Even if someone rises from the dead. Without belief and understanding, opinions have room to grow. Opinions like Jesus was a good man, a great prophet, a good teacher, or a rebel who upset the Roman authorities. Only through a knowledge of scripture will you have a proper understanding of who Jesus is. 
So here on the road to Emmaus, God prevented these two disciples from recognizing Jesus to convey a deep truth. Even if we were to see, we still might not believe. So picking back up in in verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Having listened and walked for much of the last seven miles with this stranger, they feel like they're in pretty good company. They invite him in, uh, and, and in organizing the evening meal, Jesus finds himself at the head of the table, blessing the food and breaking bread. At that moment, the fog lifts. They've already believed by logic and truth. Now they are able to experience the moment fully. Some have argued in commentaries that this is because the men saw scars on Jesus' hands when he broke the bread. I don't know. Maybe. But it says earlier on, they were kept from recognizing him. And here in verse 31, it says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Why were they kept in the dark? Again, I think it was for us. I think it's so we could experience this story through their eyes. Because even if we were to see, we might still not believe. But when your eyes have been opened, you'll want to tell others so that your eyes can be opened too. Can you imagine the excitement they must have felt? They had said to each other, did not our hearts burn Did not our hearts burn within us while he was speaking on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Their encounter with Jesus had been emotional. It had stirred them on the inside. It had moved their hearts. It had restored their peace. And once moved, they could not help but share. So, with daylight fading, there we go, with daylight fading, They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. With daylight fading, dangerous as the road would be after dark, they hurried back to Jerusalem to share the experience that had set them in motion. They were eager to share. They returned to the house where they started the day and gave witness that Jesus was risen and that they had walked with him and talked with him and that he had explained the scriptures to them and broke bread at their table. So in closing, this passage contains at least nine verbs describing movement. The two men were going. Jesus came up and walked along with them. Uh, They approached Emmaus. Jesus was going further. Uh, He went in to stay with them. He vanished from their sight. They got up and, and returned to Jerusalem amongst others. Some of these verbs tell of the movements made by Jesus. Others tell of the two men. Either way, both Jesus and his followers are on the move. It's not movement for its own sake. The moves being made have a purpose, and that is to seek Jesus, to share the story of Jesus with others, to have fellowship and communion with Jesus and others. Luke is 
documented this event as a testimony for every data-oriented person seeking the truth for the first time so that they too can be walked through a first-hand account of what happened on Resurrection Sunday so that we too can believe and develop understanding. Jesus tells us we must have scriptural truth to understand who he is. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The truth of Jesus is found in the scripture. Don't be satisfied just knowing about Jesus. Ask him into your heart and life, fellowship with him, and develop your own personal relationship with you. He loves you and has sacrificed himself for you. What will you do with Jesus this morning? Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for walking alongside us and revealing yourself to us. Thank you for forever changing the world through your resurrection from the dead. Thank you for the inspiration of your servant Luke to document these things so that we could study them today. Glory be to your name. Please help us in the coming week to grow our faith, to study your word, and by doing so, believe and understand your plan. Open our eyes and fill us with excitement to share your revelation with those around us. Thank you, Lord, for being with us today. Please bless my brothers and sisters in the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.